0: So we're going to do four things this morning. We're going to do four things this morning. So God has a word here for children and for teenagers. Then God has a word for parents. And then God has a word, we're going to drill down on the fathers. And then lastly, he has a word for all of those at work. So God is going to be speaking through the Apostle Paul, who's who's inscribing this. This is inspired by God, written to the church at Ephesus here. And so I hope you're ready for that because this is what's in it for you. Here's why it's good to be here this morning. If you have children or you have grandchildren, this is going to tell you this is like what you need to do. It's going to inform you. It's going to remind you. It's going to kind of reset you of what you need to do with them. We say, well, I don't have children. Well, this is still for you. Even if you don't have children, this is for you because it gives you a framework for someday when you will have children. Well, I don't know if I'm ever going to have children. It's still for you because you can have influence in your nieces, in your nephews, and other people there that can help you understand a sphere of responsibility that you can have in children and teenagers, young adults here. And so we're going to talk first about about, um, children here. And now, before I had children... I was a pastor, and I gave a message to all the parents on children. Can you imagine that? I can still remember some of the looks I was getting while I was talking. I'm not kidding. And so, but before Kirsten and I had children, I did a message on raising kids. It was something like how to raise kids right, or how to raise righteous kids, or something like that. And so, anyway, then I had kids. And then I was humbled. And then the next time I spoke on having, on, on, on parenting and all, I spoke on something like guidelines on how to get by. I'd really been humbled. Guidelines on how to get by raising kids. And then I had a second and a third son that further humbled me. And then my last message that I did uh, in that kind of a, uh, of a vein was suggestions for surviving. Parenthood. And so, but this morning what we 're going to do is we're going to unpack here Ephesians chapter six verse one, and how important is this passage this morning? How important is this when you look around look around our nation, you see the results the devastation here of our families disintegrating in America so we 've got to deal with that reality, but at the same time we 've got to get back to like what God had in mind in the first place here so we 're going to let our minds be renewed in that so Ephesians six is talking About raising kids and work, basically what that looks like. And I want to challenge us to to rethink that this morning here. So we're first going to begin with a word to the children of the teenagers here. So this is God's design for how we live as family units. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning verse 1. Says, Children, students, teenagers, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. If you're living under your parents' roof, that's this is for you here. And so the Bible says in Psalm 127, it says, this: it says, children are like the heritage or the blessing of the Lord. How many people know that to be true? They're, they're such a great blessing. They're a complicated blessing. They're an expensive blessing. <laughs> but they're a blessing. So, but they're also Sinners. They're also sinners, and I wanna I wanna talk about this because we need to ha- we need to have a biblical framework and viewpoint about raising kids, and so. People that have kids know they're sinners, right? You know they're sinners. You didn't have to teach them how to have a nuclear meltdown of a tantrum, right? You have to teach them how to lie. You have to teach them how to steal. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish or how to have an attitude or how to disobey. It's just sort of there, like in them, like it's inside them, like it's in their nature. So, how many people know they ultimately need? A new nature here. They ultimately need to meet Jesus. They ultimately need to be filled with his spirit. They ultimately need a right relationship with God because they're not born with a right relationship. They have to be born again to a right relationship. So what are children to do in the meantime here? It says, it says this, Children, obey your parents, okay? Your, watch, watch, your parents, not everybody's parents, but your parents, they are to obey here the parents, assuming that the parents are actually on the same page. How many people grew up in that home there where the parents were not on the same page? My text messaging blows up like about every other day with this very issue right here. Parents okay, that aren't on the same page. We have one parent that is the cop, you know, taser the kid if he doesn't, you know, uh, set up, do his make his bed, ride, whatever. Then you got the other one who's like the clown, like the Disneyland dad there that gives you a sucker, you know, and takes you to uh, the mall every day, regardless of how you're blowing them off. So you you need to be on the same page. Parents there need to be on the same page here. Obey your parents. And so God says, look, I designed this whole thing and here's how it's supposed to roll. Here's how the family rolls here and so pretty straightforward command, obey your parents. No no little ex- no little fine print, no exemption clause like, well, you know what Uh, Like we create reasons why they don't need to obey in culture. Things like, well, you know what we got? They're in the terrible two stage. So in the terrible two stage, they just go off, you know. So you're thinking, okay, so this year's going to be evil. I got it here. So then when they turn three, as you light the birthday cake, that's all over, right? And now they're going to be wonderful because they were in the terrible twos. So, in your notes god 's way revolutionary is that I know it 's controversial, but they actually obey okay that 's god 's way. parents are to be to be obeyed, of course, unless they 're contradicting God here, but if you don 't, there are implications for that they're like serious implications so it says you obey your parents in the Lord, parents who now know the Lord, parents who serve the Lord, parents who uh, uh, are those that are uh, promoting God's purpose for, for their lives here. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Again, I get it, very controversial that it's the right thing to do here. And then it says this. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. So now we have this lifelong command to honor the position of the parent here. So what you see here is God is placing great value on the honor of parents, that they should be shown honor. This is God originated this here, that children then must be taught to honor authority, and it begins in the home. Now think about this if, if you, we don't do this. Obeying authority is a very important life skill that has been developed in the home there. And so a kid who says, hey, you know what? nobody tells me what to do. I mean, are they going to be working very long with that kind of attitude? They're they're not going to be working very long. And so you need to realize that this is something that happens in the home here. So they're just echoing the 10 commandments there. And so honoring parents is the foundation for every other kind of respect. And that's where God has ordained that it happens there. And so not to dishonor, but to honor honor here, regardless of their age here. So as a teenager, you honor by respecting your parents here. And so teenagers reach the age where, like you and I, you realize, hey, my parents have some flaws. In fact, as a teenager, I think that's all that I saw was like my parents' flaws. You know what I'm talking about? Like all they see are your flaws. But it doesn't matter about that. It says that you are still in light of that. You're to honor them. So what does it mean to honor? It means, to in the, in the original language, it means to give weight. It means to be heavy. The opposite of blowing off. Blowing off, him. no, 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 it's the opposite. It's to give weight, and then to realize that they matter is the opposite of trivializing them, like, ah, whatever, you know what you're talking about. See, no, that, that's not honoring. So you honor your parents, and why do you do that? Why would you honor your parents? Well, here it is. So that, verse three, it'll go well with you, and you may enjoy long life on the earth. So here's the promise if you honor your parents. I mean, you wanna do it because it's gonna go well with you. In other words, your best life is found on the other side of honoring them. Your worst life is found on the other side of dishonoring them. Now, think about this, and that you can enjoy long life on the earth. In other words, your life will be shorter if you dishonor your parents. In other words, it will impact how long your children live. It will impact how well you live here disobey your parents. It says, it'll minimize your life here. You will not leave. You could die before your time. You could die before your time. So I want to filter this through my own life here and what this looked like in my own life here, because I know I would not be here this morning if I didn't honor my parents. And and for many reasons, but here's just one. When I was 16, got my license, all that, I was passionate about driving motorcycles. And I drove cars and I'm I'm not proud to say that I drove really fast. Like, I'd see the triple digits there. And I commuted from West Covina to Palos Verdes uh, every week. Every week. And I would do it like in 45 minutes. Uh, that's a long drive. I do like for I drove so fast. I'd do it later at night. And so my dad didn't let me have a motorcycle. And I wanted his motorcycle in the worst way. This is how bad I wanted it. I would be on his motorcycle with the thing revved up, sitting on it, ready to hit the clutch, ready to take off. And my dad would walk out and he said, "Uh, Ron, um, I don't think so. Uh, We're not today. And so, and he did that with me every day. Had I got that motorcycle, I would have definitely put my life at risk. If I didn't honor my dad's request, and then I got to college, I won the motorcycle again, and I know I would have been driving that thing fast, I probably wouldn't be here. My life would have been, it would have not have gone well with me, and I would have not lived long on the earth. If I didn't honor my dad that told me, Rod, this is how it's going to be here. And so... It's critical that, you, that we appropriately, appropriately respond then to this principle here. So it goes well with you. Verse 4. It says, now fathers. And so now he's going to hammer on the fathers. He's going to hammer. He's going to tell you something to do and something not to do. Fathers, don't exasperate or provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so the inference is, is this is for both parents. It just said, honor your parents. But now what he's doing is drilling down on the fathers. And he says this here, you've got an additional responsibility. And so he says, look, God says, in the home, I'm putting something else on your shoulders. And you've got to be the man, is what he's saying. So you've got to be the man here. And Ephesians 6 4 says, look, you've got responsibility. I want to talk to you about that responsibility here. So he's going to key and he's going to focus on the father. says, "Look, some of you, you're not taking care of business. You're not taking care of business, so I want to talk to you here, because what happens in culture today is we outsource parenting. We outsource it. We outsource it to the church. We outsource it to institutions. We outsource it to jails. We outsource it to schools. We just outsource it. We outsource. So this is saying, this is a calling to fathers to get back in the game here. And so the the point is like, okay, so where are the fathers? How important is this? Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Here's how important it is. It says, I will visit the iniquity of the father. Yeah, to the third, to the children, to the third and the fourth generation. Now let's think about that for a moment. This is saying that if fathers don't get it right, fathers' problems and issues will be transferred. Things that I can't work out will be transferred not just to my kids, but my kids' kids. It'll mess up my kids. It'll mess up my kids' kids, and it'll mess up my kids' kids' kids. That's how significant this, this principle is here. And so I transfer the problems. When I don't get it, when I don't get it right, I mess up generations that's what that's what the bible's saying here and so where it has a generational power there so watch maybe you learned something from your parent okay and it kind of messed you up maybe it was their anger and it messed you up and then you ended up with that anger inside you and then it messes up your kids and then it can mess up their kids that's what it's saying here and so the challenge today then is what the challenge is for fathers to, and parents to accept and to reassert okay, the challenge to accept this responsibility. That's the challenge. And so I want to illustrate it this way. I want to illustrate it this way. So I've been to Africa many times. This is a bull elephant here. Show this bull elephant. So there's bull elephants. Now Go to, go to the next one here. And so in Africa they have bull elephants in Kruger National Park. In Kruger National Park, I've seen these uh, a number of times here. And so these are massive, huge beasts. So what happened in Kruger National Park about 20 years ago is that the, the larger bull elephants, they were, they were removed from the population for different reasons. So then what happened is you just had the baby bulls, and then you had the teenage bull elephants. And there was a devastating dynamic that happened when the male bull elephant was removed from the culture, kind of like in America that men are removed from from the the home there and so what happened was is that they noticed this dynamic that had never happened in the history of South Africa before or since. What happened was they started noticing that the white rhinos were being killed. And of course they thought there were po- poachers, so they'd been searching for the poachers and they could never find them. And ultimately what they found out was is that these elephants had turned into like gangs. they literally turned into gangs. They literally had rap sheets on the different elephants. They began to film them. They found out, I'm not kidding, this is true, you can Google it. Google it when you get home. You can Google this. And so what happened was they literally had rap sheets. And they had a name for them, like Tom Thumb and different ones. And so after uh, this, they found out they were killing the white rhinos. And they ended up killing 39. There was only about 390. They killed 10%. So they're like gangs. They're out of control. They're assaulting cars. They are... They're going through the jungle and they're smashing, destroying the jungle. I've been there and I've have seen things like this when there are there's no uh, uh, male bull elephants there, and so what they did then is they designed these these um, large vehicles. And they reinserted. They didn't know what to do. It was just out of control. Absolute total chaos was happening in the family dynamic there. So what they did is they thought, let's get some more bull elephants. So they brought the bull elephants and they reinserted them back into the, into the culture there. And this is what happens. Let me, let me read to you what happened in that culture when they, when they reinserted the bull elephants back in there. It says this, and I quote, This is the park ranger. Van Dyke compared it to a large group of teenagers who have been acting up, who are confronted by their fathers all of a sudden. I continue. The juveniles seem to be reading the message loud and clear. Here's what would happen. The big bull elephants showed up. They begin to flap their ears, you know, and flap them faster and faster. And it's like, hey, dad's home. Dad's home, stop the nonsense. Okay, and so since the big bulls arrived, not one rhino has been killed. Not one. 39, devast- not one when dad got home here. It says, even Tom Thumb has calmed down. He had one of the biggest rap sheets there. So the herd the of craziness, the absolute chaos, They're out of control because the male elephant had returned to the herd. So it's time for us to return to our herd, our responsibility, so that the chaos calms down as a nation, as the church here. Fathers, you got to be there. You got to be the ones to to bring them up. You got to get back into the, the herd there. We get so distracted here. So it says it continues here. It continues, don't exasperate or provoke your children to anger. In other words, don't set them off. See, here's what to do. Now here's what not to do. Think of this, all the things that that God can inspire Paul to say to the fathers. He says, well, here's the one thing they need to know. Here's the one thing, the the irreducible minimum. Don't turn them into angry people. Don't create an environment, don't create atmospheres that create an angry child. Don't do that. Just rather create a home environment that encourages the child. Be an encourager and not a discourager here. Don't exasperate or provoke. What's that mean, exasperate? It means to agitate, it means to irritate, it means to frustrate until they're just angry. Now, how can we do that here? Well, I've got a few suggestions here. It's not a complete list. And by the way, this is true of moms also, but we're specifically speaking to the dads. So how can we as parents, though, exasperate our children? I'm going to give about maybe five or six examples. One way is just unrealistic expectations. Trying to have them attain to expectations, they're just unattainable. There's unrealistic. It's just beyond them. You know, with my three sons, and I can say this because they're not here. I knew, and I could see growing up. I'm just telling the truth. I could see that they had different inclinations, and they had different capacities, and they had different abilities academically and athletically. So I would encourage them in certain ways, but the the one that I knew was like like a powerhouse academically. I didn't put the same amount of Of um, expectations upon another child as I did upon him. I put higher expectations on him that were fair because I knew what he was capable of, but I didn't do that to, to the others. And then the one that was, you know, wired up athletically, and I knew I could see it, I didn't put the same level of expectations on the other two athletically as I did for that one. See, and we, we frustrate, we irritate, we agitate them when we set, when we set expectations so far beyond them. Like, they're going to be a 4.7 GPA and go to the Olympics. Like, I don't think so. Like, I'd see kids when I was a coach uh, or a manager of a soccer team for many, many years. I had all these, all these dads coming in thinking little Miho was going to be the next Messi. I'm just telling you, it's not going to happen. Miho, it may be Mijo, but he's not Messi. He's not Ronaldo. So don't put that on him. And I, but we as a culture, we do this. This is what we do here. And so, exasperation by unrealistic expectations. Psalm one hundred three four says this. Look, God is mindful that we're but dust, like we are but dust here. Another way we exasperate is through criticism, by being unnecessarily harsh and always critical here. And the, the, the parent that is always harping on the kid. And I'm not talking about correcting. I'm not talking about about feedback. I'm not talking about confronting. I'm talking about that harsh, critical, constantly harping on a kid. That is going to incite within him a response. Anger is going to come out of them. That's how you exasperate them. I we need to remember that Think of them as like they got a little bank inside them, and there's a bank that, uh, that we need to fill up and load it up with encouragement there, here, and deposit lots of that. And not so much this criticism thing, because one, we, when we do that, that's like withdrawing from them. And so when you say things like, and I heard, I've heard friends say this to their, to their kids, their sons, like, hey, stupid. How damaging is that? Don't remember, you know, hey, dummy, hi, loser, you idiot. What do you do? You failed. No, you want to give buckets of encouragement there. Fill that that up, those deposits there. And then, you know, when you have to speak about correction and all, it's in a context of encouragement there. And so give life-giving words, powerful words, memorable words here. It's very easy to say this. It's very easy to say this. I'll do this a lot. I'll say, hey, I love that. I love that you're filling the blank. there. How easy is that? But that encourages them. Oh, man, dad loves it when I do that. And so find something to love. I appreciate that. You're a blessing. The bottom line is that you, you're a coach and, and not a critic there. So we can exasperate them by being over-controlling. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, hey, kids can't be out of control. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about smothering, over controlling here, cannot breathe. That's gonna create a rebellious child. You can see it happening. Exasperation by being emotionally absent, just out of the, out just checked out like your your body is home but nobody else is home there on the phone always working always distracted always preoccupied never can be uh, interrupted there never never having fun i was going to i was trying to come up with another one and i was going to say exasperation by being boring <laughs> come on you know some dads don't even know what to do with the fudge sickle. Don't even know what to do with the wiffle ball. Don't even know what to do with the soccer ball or a swimming pool. Or, you know, be fun. Be fun with the kids there. So now I, I recognize in saying this, like, oh man, yeah, okay. Maybe I've exasperated here or there. This is not, this is like this is a guilt-free zone. Here, a guilt-free zone, not burning anyone. Our kids don't need perfect parents. Jesus didn't have a perfect parent, perfect parents, right? And he actually turned out okay, you know what I mean? He turned out all right. And he didn't have perfect parents. So next here it says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's what those bull elephants were doing. They were, they were brought in to bring them up there and to set a standard and so to, to teach them values. And this is how we act. You know, we don't kill the white rhinos. That's not how we act. We don't smash the tourist cars, not how we act. We don't destroy the junk, not how we act there. And so now this continues even uh, bringing them up. I've got three children, 20, 22, and 25. Do you think my wife Kirsten and I are still bringing them up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, baby. We certainly are here, and so they may be in college or out of college, but they still need guidelines. They still need guidelines. So, when they ultimately leave, then the scriptures say what Proverbs twenty-two that train up a child, a teenager, in the way that they should go, and then when they're old, they won't depart from it. But notice it doesn't say they won't stray. It doesn't say they won't stray. So it means that when you do your job and they do stray, there's the Holy Spirit can just reel them back in, is what it means. it's saying. It's going to reel, set that hook and reel them back in because you set the hook a long time ago. And so how many people are here, and you, you're here, and you hated church when you were a kid? You hated church. Just by show of hands, just let me see. I look at that. There's people here. You hated church when you were a kid, but you're here now. I'm sure maybe you, you had your, your journey there, and you circled back, and so... The Holy Spirit can reel them back in. That's what, what he can do there. And so if your kids have, have, have wandered off there, you can ask God to cause the wind of his spirit to blow and to reel them back in there. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to pivot. We're going to shift. We're going to do a little 180 here. Oh, we're going to read verse 5. Now we're going to talk, talk about work. Whoa! Everybody excited? can feel the energy. On the count of three, we'll go woo-hoo. Okay, one, two, three. Good, I could feel the energy. Good. So, you know, here's the, here's the deal. Does your work matter to God? Does God care about your job? Does God care about the dynamic of your job and how you do your job and all that? Does he care? Yeah. So let's let our thinking here now, let's let our thinking here be renewed. He says, slaves, that's talking about, that would be employees. In this culture... That's what they had. They were slaves. In our culture now, we have employees, okay, or workers. Obey your earthly master or your employer. How do you do that? With respect and fear, and sincerity of heart, just as you'd obey Christ. Wow, this changes everything. This changes everything here. Paul's writing to a group of people. They, you're sitting there and you got regular jobs. They were sitting there as slaves, and they were sitting as slaves of non-Christians, and they're hearing him say this. Now, do you think that being a slave was like their dream job? No, not exactly their dream job. You can talk back when I ask you a question. It was a bad job, right? Bad job. And so he's so given them a greater concept, a greater perspective of how to see their new, their, their job through the new lens of Ephesians 6 here. So God cares about your work. God cares about you. So I want to invite you to rethink your work. I'm invite because I'm going to say some things to, to some of us you've never heard before. You've never thought about it this way. Here, now let me ask this: Can work be dangerous? And how can work be dangerous? Can I find my identity in my work? Can I find my identity in my work, especially guys? Yeah. Can I can I find my value in what I do? Find my value in that. Can I? Can I do that? And how many people struggle in when they don't work? Okay, uh, tra- making that transition. Can I? Can I struggle with that? I judge other people by their work. Are people vulnerable to because they're successful at work that then they just think they are successful just because they're successful at work? Complete train wreck at home but they think I'm successful because I'm successful at work. No amount of success ever justifies failing right here in the home is what he's saying here. Uh, We can become uh, find our esteem right out of our work, from our work. We can become workaholics. How devastating can work be? So this is going to recalibrate us. Here it says, how you are at work, verse 6. It says, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. In other words, don't just kiss up to them when they're looking at you and you're in their presence. He says this, but as servants of Christ, slaves or servants, now this changes everything. Okay, doing the will of God from your heart. So this would describe people, it says here, not only winning their favor when they're watching you. This describes people that when they're looking, there you are, you're performing, you're doing your job. But when they're not looking... You're goofing around, you're messing around, you're jerking around here. That's what it's talking about. You're texting, on the internet, social media, surfing the, surfing the internet, uh, reading your blogs, all that stuff there. When they're not looking is what this is saying. See, this is changing everything. This could transform. How transformative is this? If we accept it and we believe it and we understand it, we'll absolutely transform the workplace. So he's talking about, now, when the boss is around... Or how you are, then when the boss or the board member or the owner or your, your you know, director, whoever is not around, says, no, this is how you're to think about it. But as servants of Christ, really, see, you're actually working for God. Not just them, but it's more than that here. You're doing it wholeheartedly, some of the translations read, with integrity. Okay, honestly, how this would change work here. So when I become a Christ follower, it completely changes how I work. My experience with this is when one of my first jobs was as a prep cook. And so every day I worked for a... a, um, A former cruise line executive chef at the highest level, the highest who who ran a cruise liner. I worked under him. He was a Greek chef named Xenokratos A. Berdos. We used to call him Sandy. And I was under his tutelage. Hey, man, just got to make it easy. I was under his tutelage there because my dad owned the restaurant. It was named after me. And so. I thought I might get a little more response when I said that, like you'd be impressed or something there because it was named after me. So thank you. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the admiration. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So I was always trapped in the back there as a prep cook. But anyway, Sandy taught me how to cut tomatoes, how to be done with absolute like surgical precision, how to do onions and great cheese and all that. And So I love the job for about a day, for about a day. And so it got to be an absolute grind to the point where I didn't look forward. I smelled like a hamburger every day. I just didn't look forward to peeling about uh, at least 100, 200 pounds of onions every day. That was me. That was what I looked forward to every day. And so I got to hate the job. And then, I, and then I'm in high school, right? And I read this verse. And you know what? It changed everything. And no longer was I doing this for e eberdos. Now I was doing this for Jesus. I'm telling you, it changed my life. Then I showed up there, you know, and I'd, I'd walk in there. I'm not, telling, I'm not kidding. I'd grab, I'd grab that, you know, 100 pounds of onions. And I'd throw that across the kitchen with zest, you know. And, and then I'd, I'd start doing the onions and the cheese and the tomato. How am I doing, Sandy? And, and so uh, and it really changed, it changed my life. This verse right here. Not unto men, not with eye service, But do it as unto the Lord. And here's why. It says, you're going to receive a reward. Verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if. As if you're serving the Lord and not people here. And so, so now your earthly boss is not your most important boss. Okay. Now... And I get it, you may work for a great company, may work for a crummy company, may have a great boss, you may have a bad boss, but in your notes, we have to change how we work. In your notes, this is saying we've got to change how we work here. So no longer just serving an earthly master, supervisor, manager, employer, boss, whoever there, now you have a new boss. So ultimately, what this tells us is your in your notes, your ultimate boss, it's not your earthly boss. Say, it's not your earthly boss. Your number one boss is Jesus. So as a Christ follower, you ultimately have a new boss here. He's the one that gave you the work. He's the one that rescued you. He's the one that provided for you. He changes everything. As if work, as if you're serving the Lord here. And so what a liberating idea. What a transformative idea here that because we spend the majority of our day working, and so, and we can disassociate or disattach ourselves. Okay, now I'm going to church, or now I'm reading my Bible, but now I go to work, you know, as if it's completely disconnected. It's not here, working for the Lord. All work matters to God, all workers matter to God. There's no job that is insignificant, according to God. See, there's no worker that's insignificant. Peeling onions, grating uh, cheese, doing tomatoes every day for about four hours a day. Do it as unto the glory of God. Let it change your life like it did mine. Now think about this. We read earlier in Ephesians and it says, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that you would be about that good work. Not saved by that, but what you're saved unto that, that your life would have good works. Would you think maybe, just maybe at your work could be part of the good works that God would have for you? Just maybe the majority of your life there? Watch, you're a, you're a stay-at-home mom, okay? Here's what God has for you. There are good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. You're a barista, you're a coffee pro there. Hey, God has got a good work for you to do in, in that environment. Perhaps you're, you're a, a student, you're a CEO, you're a banker, you're a community group leader, you're a lawyer, you're a judge, you're a health aide, you're a general manager there, you work at Starbucks, you're a teacher, you're like me, you did fast food, or you're in healthcare, an RN, truck driver, whatever you do, there is a good work for you to do that's attached to that. Now watch this, he says, because you know, and here's what you know, The Lord's going to reward you. How awesome is that? Because you know the Lord's going to reward each one of you for whatever they do, whether they're a slave or free. See, you work for God. God will reward you. If you believe that, and again, it's transformative here. So in your notes, we have to change like what we work for. We're working for a reward, not just earthly rewards, but there is God's reward for you. You know that he will reward each one of you for whatever you do. Colossians 3.23 puts it this way. Puts it says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you're working for who? McDonald's? Starbucks? No, as though you're working for the Lord rather than people. Verse nine, and I close with this. And masters owners, CEOs, board members, VP, self-employed, treat your employees in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Look, the, the ultimate boss is God, is what he's saying here. So he says, and don't show favoritism. He's saying, look, God, you're, you're one of those things. You're an employer, you're a CEO, you're a board member, whatever. It says, those people that work for you, okay, God is watching you. God is watching how you treat them. And you better treat the kids well. You better treat those children well because you're one of his kids too. Not just them here. So don't you mistreat them and all. You treat others under your authority as I have treated you. Is what he's saying here. So, in your notes, every boss who is a Christian has a boss named Jesus. Every boss who's a Christ follower, you have a boss too. And your boss is Jesus. And this changes everything. So, God has a word here as I close and as the worship team comes up God has a word for children to obey their parents. God has a word for parents. God has a word for fathers, for dads. God has a word for everybody that works. So what we're now to do as we conclude here is we're to work out the word. Work it out in our lives. Like, What does that look like for you in your life tomorrow morning? What's that look like? So let's bow our heads and close. Father, thank you that I just want to pray for the fathers that you would help us to accept and to reassert our God-given responsibility, that we would return to our herd. Father, that you would help us not to exasperate our children to anger, but to help us to love, to bring them up, to be a coach and not a critic, to be present. Father, to... To, to help by praying that you would reel them back in if they're gone, to cause the wind of your spirit to blow afresh upon them. And, Father, would you help us to see our work through your eyes, how we work and who we work for. Father, I pray that we would do it as unto you, and that knowing that it's from you we would, re- we would receive our reward. So Father, I pray that you would take your word and just light a match and throw it upon your word and upon our hearts. May it just stir and burn within us and may it produce the kind of change and lifestyle that you would have for us. Lord, thank you so much for everyone that's here. Lord, thank you that they come and they listen. I just appreciate so much the opportunity to be with them. Father, I pray that you would bless them. Bless your word, I ask, to their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.